The following presentation is from Mountain Park Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Mountain Park, along with additional audio and video teachings, visit mountainpark.org. Good morning, Mountain Park. Uh, My name is Beth. I'm a pastor here on staff. I work with the students from 6th to 12th grade, um, and uh, I have the honor of being here with you today. I'm I'm really excited. I'm also super nervous because the students are all in charge over there all by themselves. And so, like, I, uh, when we were uh, saying goodbye to them this morning, me and John normally work with students, and we're saying goodbye to them. It felt just like when I first left my first child with a babysitter. It was like, okay, all right, I'll be good. Everyone make wise choices. Like, call me if you need me, you know. Um, So anyways, uh, Easter's coming up. And I'm really, really excited about Easter. I just wanted to uh, point out that the Stations of the Cross is a fantastic thing to participate in. It's one of my favorite Easter things to do. Um, Last year, I took my two-and-a-half-year-old to do Stations of the Cross. Now, we knew that she wouldn't really get everything in that, but we decided we were going to go for it. We're going to try it, see what she did get. It was fantastic. If you don't know, you kind of journey around the church doing different stations at a time. You do some scripture reading. It's got some questions. There's an interactive piece that you can do. Um, And at some point in the journey, there was one station that talked about, um, hey, remember who the people are that you lost this year. Grieve their loss. And so we were telling this to our two-year-old, and she, and we asked her, you know, who have you lost this year? And she goes, moose. And we were like, right, just two or three weeks earlier, we had lost her favorite stuffed blue moose at some, we don't know, parking lot, bookstore. We, had, we looked everywhere for this moose. Couldn't find it. So we finally resigned, you know what? She's just going to have to learn about heartache and loss now. And Uh, we're doing stations, and somehow in the process of doing these stations, she associated the death of her blue moose with the death of Jesus, right? So she's going through this thing, and she's like, yeah, moose, moose died, Jesus died, I get this, right? Which is kind of cool until we get to station 15, where it talks about the resurrection of Jesus. (laughs) And so it it said the instructions are, say a prayer um, of hope that that, um, just as uh, God resurrected Christ, that, that things will be resurrected in your life, right? So we tell her this, and she knows, she gets that she's supposed to say a prayer to God about this. So she throws her hands open, open and up, and God, bring back blue moose to me, right? So what do I do? I go on eBay. I find... <laughs> I, I find the same exact blue moose, get it overnight shipped, and it arrives on Easter Day, right? So here's a picture of how excited we were. <laughs> it, was, it was fantastic. It was one of those perfect teaching moments where, like, faith really comes to life for your kid. Now, those don't come just easily. Like, those don't just happen all the time. Um, and so what we did actually this year was we uh, put some legwork into helping you make that happen. So in your program, there's this brochure that says Easter at Home. 
It's got some activity guides that you can do at home with your kids if you want. Uh, if you don't have kids, that's fine. You can do them with your spouse or your significant other. Um, if you don't even have that, then don't worry about it. You can also get a group of friends together and do these together. They're super, super fun. Don't worry about having to do all of them. Just pick and choose the ones that seem right to you. Um, but it really, really is fun to do things like that, to see the light bulbs go on and, and uh, people's faces kind of light up as you're making this, this faith journey real. Um, Let's, let's go to ahead and pray together before we get started on our whole shebang journey. Father God, I ask that you would be present in this room, that you would open our hearts and our minds to know what it means to live differently for you. In your holy and precious name, amen. Um, so for the past several months, we've been on this journey of the whole shebang. We've been talking about the story of God, and it's not just the biblical story of the Old Testament and New Testament. It's the Old Testament, the New Testament, the church history, what happened after that, how our lives are entwined in God's story, and then what is the future? What are we waiting for? What is the hope that we are just anxiously awaiting for? Um, and so this year, as we've been walking through the whole shebang, we've been looking at it through the lens of uh, the pursuit of holiness. And Alan's kind of defined holiness as living noticeably different, living noticeably different lives. Now, uh, in, in the story of where we're, we've been since the beginning of the year, we've kind of looked at the exodus, at God very early on choosing a specific people group and saying, it is through this people, the Israelites, that I will create my covenant. And through that people group, all nations will know me. You, my people, are called to be holy, to pursue holiness, to live noticeably different, right? And he compared this analogy, Alan compared this analogy of when God does that, he treats them very much like you would a young child. He sets up very um, uh, strict guidelines and rules and regulations. He walks them through each step and says, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what this looks like. He gives them lots and lots of warnings. But as the nation is growing up, they are leaving the time of exodus and they're entering the time of exile. It's kind of like God has said, you know what? I have given you warning after warning after warning after warning. It's, it's time to reap some of the consequences of, of what it is that you've done. And so he, he tells the people, listen, if you do not repent and turn, you will be kicked out of the promised land. You'll be kicked out of my house. Now, Alan has says that this is the teenage years, uh, that they are filled with rebellion and bad choices. He, he creates that analogy of the teenage years. Now, Alan is very, very smart. He's very wise about a whole number of different things. But about this one, he is wrong. He doesn't even have teenagers. Now, I don't have teenagers either, um, but I work with a lot of them, and it's true that they do reap a lot of consequences for themselves. Um, at the same time, they have this amazing potential to be incredible. They have this amazing potential to defy the stereotypes of rebellion and say, no, I'm going to live differently. And when they do, everyone takes notice. And so I kind of wanted to highlight one um, in particular uh, a way that that has happened for me this past year. Actually, yeah, this past year specifically. I have this group of students that I work with, and they're incredible. Um, we meet together on a weekly basis to plan out what we do for our Wednesday night life, which for our students we call SU Nights. Um, we have like a, a somewhere between 50 and 100 students show up every Wednesday night to hang out in the gym, and these high school students, a small group of high school students, 
puts together the entire program for this. They do everything. They plan it. They execute it. So they call the pizza, uh, call the pizza people, make sure they come. If they've given them the right pr- wrong price, they hound them. You know, they do it all. They set up. They decide what it is that we're doing. In fact, a couple months ago, they took on the teaching that happened. So we have a high school student every week that gets up in front of their peers and teaches out of the Bible. This is a gospel message that they're giving and telling other people, hey, hey, this is what Christ has done in my life. This is what he can do in your life. This is the good news. Now, this is an incredible group of students that does this. Incredible. They defy the odds. And what they're finding is if they stick together, they can live noticeably different. Do they still mess up? Absolutely. But they find that if they stick together, they can live noticeably different. The reason I highlight that this morning is because in the story we're going to look at, there's tons of parallels. It's, it's this group of kids. Well, I don't really know if they're kids. I don't really even know if they're teenagers. They could be young adults. They could be old adults. It doesn't really say. But, well, just kidding. It says they're young men. Okay, group of young men that are together, and they say, we are going to live noticeably different together. So open your Bible to the book of Daniel. We're going to start in chapter 1. Now, the way that this fits into the whole story is that the people have been uh, in the promised land. God has been threatening them with exile, and finally, exile has come. They've been given all the warnings of the prophets. They did not listen, and so exile happens. And it describes that exile um, in Daniel 1, which we'll read right here. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Young men, see right there, young men. Um, Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezariah. The chief officials gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food or wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion on Daniel, but the, off, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned you your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. So the official is terrified that if Daniel and his friends look differently than the other kids because they're eating different, that guy, he's, he's going to die. He's going to take the fall for that. Daniel then said to the guard who the, uh, 
chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us, all three of us, nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare your appearance, our appearance, with that of the young men who eat at the royal food and treat your servants in accordance in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine and gave them water to drink and vegetables instead. So these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand versions, visions and dreams of all kind. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezariah. So they entered the king's service in Every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better in all, than all his magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. So we have this parallel story of this group of friends, this group of young men who say, you know what, I'm going to defy the stereotype of rebellion, and if we stick together, we can continue to live noticeably different. Now, the interesting thing about this, one of the first things I realized, was that if anybody had reason to turn away from the pursuit of holiness, to turn away from living noticeably different, it was these guys. They've been dragged off from their country land. They've kind of been enslaved into the king's court, taught a different language. They're kind of, all this stuff is being shoved down their throat. And yet they still say, no, even in exile... I am going to remain faithful to God. I am going to live noticeably different, right? So the story continues, and I'm going to summarize this part. The story continues that King Nebuchadnezzar decides that he is going to erect a giant gold statue of himself. And every time um, the, the, the harp and the lyre and all the music plays, he says, everyone in the kingdom is going to bow down and worship me right? Everything gets a little bit harder. So turn with me to chapter 3. We're going to read that too. Chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, I don't know if any of you grew up on Veggie Tales, but I always get this picture of this chocolate bunny in my head, right? We know this story. Okay. At, the, at, at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever! Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews who you have set over the affairs of the providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you. Now notice that their names are changed, right? Before we were talking about the same people, but now we're using their Babylonian names, okay? Same friends. Um, uh, They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. 
furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, harp, lyre, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Dun, dun, dun. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If the God we serve is able to deliver us, then he will deliver us from this blazing furnace and from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing fire. This is an excellent story, isn't it? Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He looked, uh, he said, look, I see four men walking around the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of the fire, and the prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels to rescue his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's commands and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut into pieces and their houses burned in piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. This is a fantastic story. This is a fantastic story of people standing up and saying, hey, I am going to live noticeably different. And if you want to read the entire book of Daniel, you just get one after the next, after the next, after the next of these pictures of people saying, I'm going to live noticeably different. Um, The friends go to great lengths to do this. They don't budge. Exile, they don't budge. The food, they don't budge. They have a furnace in front of them. They don't budge. He heats it up seven times hotter. They do not budge. In the pursuit of holiness, there is always going to be a fiery furnace that's in front of us. Everything's going to get a little bit hotter and a little bit more difficult. My most recent experience with this, my most recent insight, is that nothing heats up life like moving. 
Um, I, uh, uh, two weeks ago, I became a permanent resident of Awatuki. Yay! Right? But if you are committed to living an intentional and kind and compassionate life with your family, when you start to move, everything goes down the drain. Right? Um, kids in particular don't like to move. It, it's, it's a hard thing. It's this traumatic thing that they can't really articulate, they can't really explain. They don't know what's going on. They've got a lot of angst. I saw that my daughter reached the bottom of her uh, ability to cope when I brought her to preschool one day. In the middle of a move, bring her to preschool, drop her off. There was some game they were playing at a table when they get there. She's got this dice. She, it flies out of her hands across the room onto the floor where the 18-month-old sibling of another student is standing. He picks it up. She runs over to him this close to his face. Don't move my stuff! The boy throws the dice, runs to his mom, and starts bawling, bawling. Now, I've seen this whole thing happen, but the mom didn't know what had gone on. And little 18-month-old didn't have the words to tell, hey, this is what happened. So she's holding him saying, what's wrong? What happened? What's wrong? Now, that is where the furnace gets seven times hotter. And your choice is... Do you discipline your child and have her go apologize, or do you slowly back out of the room? (laughs) Right? And then there was the pizza phone call. So when we were moving, we were so blessed. I mean, so blessed. We had so many people show up at our house to help us move, Um, like 30-plus people and 10 pickup trucks. Like, it was crazy. We moved the whole house and storage unit in 90 minutes. We were on it, right? It was inc- we were so, so incredibly blessed. Um, and then they all left, and the second shift people came in to set up our pantry and our laundry room and start setting up the beds. And I mean, it was incredible. It was incredible. Um, but about 7 o'clock at night, I realized nobody's really eaten, so we probably need to get some food for everyone. I run out to go get pizza, and as I'm coming home, my husband calls on the phone, who's been working his tail off all week, calls on the phone and says, where are you? Your girls, which you never, it's never good. (laughs) When you own them, that's never good. Your girls are going crazy. You need to come take care of them. Now, seven times hotter. I'm trying to live noticeably different here, and you're making this very difficult, right? So I have a choice. I have a choice. Do I insert witty, sarcastic remark and hang up the phone? Or do I say something very compassionate and understanding of, hey, I'm right around the corner. I will be home and I will take care of all of their needs. Please don't worry. (laughs) If you think I made the right choice in either one of those scenarios, you don't know me well enough. You think way too much of me. But we all have those moments where the furnace starts to heat up. We've made a commitment to live differently, and yet it gets hot, right? It's like when we're at work and our coworker starts to say an inappropriate joke. How do I respond? What am I supposed to do with this? It's like when we're really, really trying to follow God's path and um, be more kind and compassionate, loving, all that stuff, and your parent calls and says, hey, you are just such a disappointment right? It's, it's um, another time where, where uh, you are sitting at home alone with the computer, 
and you can look at any site you want, what are you going to do, right? It's another time where you just have uh, lies being shot at you from all around you, that you are worthless, that you are a failure, that you are not good enough. Um, It's the fear of loss and death. That's when the fire starts to heat up, right? We all have these moments When the mission is to live noticeably different, the furnace comes and it asks you the question, do I stand or do I bow? And your response to that is going to be completely dependent on who is standing next to you in that fire. Who is on your right and who is on your left? Who are you together with? Now, in all of these stories throughout the book of Daniel, particularly the ones I highlighted, um, they're not alone. They're very much together. It's like the three amigos traveling together, Daniel and his three amigos. They're, They're together in these things. They're walking together. But who's standing next to you in this pursuit? See, for me, um, I have an incredible vision uh, or or, uh, incredible burden. I have an incredible burden for students that I want to see them become mature believers in Christ. Not that they are okay and they don't do drugs or sex or uh, anything else until they graduate and then maybe they can become mature believers. That's not my vision. That's not my vision. I want them to be mature believers right now, right now as teenagers, to have a passionate faith in God to pursue after him, right? Now, most days I love my job. I really do. I love working with teenagers. They're so spirited. They're crazy. I love it. It's fantastic, right? Um, But then there are those other days when my heart breaks and I cannot confront one more broken family. I don't want to talk to one more student who is struggling and really, really struggling. I am tired of my own feelings of rejection. I, I, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it. And in those moments, I am incredibly blessed to have people that are standing right next to me that say, no, you can do this. And even better, when they say, I'm going to do this with you. And so they come with me to the house of the student and talk to the parents. And they come with me out with the student do whatever. They, they part, it's this incredible sense of, okay, when I am weak, they can walk with me. And I really believe that is the only way that we can continue to walk this path of living noticeably different lives. Who's standing next to you? Who is in this with you? We all kind of get this idea that, well, yeah, we got to do this together. But I think we jip ourselves with what that looks like. We think that it's a lot more shallow than it really is. I mean, this idea of togetherness is deep. It is really, really deep. It's not just commenting on somebody's Facebook status when they've had a bad day. Oh, smiley face or sad face, right? That's not what it is. It's let me do something about that. How can I help you? Where can I be? In fact, don't even ask where can I be and how can I help you? I'm doing this. This is what I'm doing. I'm coming over in 15 minutes. I'll be there. It's not just being compassionate to the friend as they tell you their story of woe when you meet for coffee. It's being the friend that, that, that somebody can call at 2 a.m. and wake you up 
And you're the one who says, you know what? I'm going to pray for you. Right now we're doing this. I'm not going to, oh, I'll pray for you. I'm praying for you right now. We are in this together. Right? It's not... It's not just uh, talking to your friend about the last week's episode of Modern Family. It's inviting somebody else to be a part of your modern family and saying, hey, how am I doing? Do you have any thoughts, any advice? Asking somebody to critique your parenting, your marriage, your... (gasps) Inviting them into those sorts of things. And it's not just joining a small group It's openly sharing your lives with the people of that small group. To share your story and your heart. To let them, as Alan said last week, see the marred parts of your life, the imperfect parts of your life that you don't want anybody to see. And to say, all right, here I am. Let's do this. That is what that looks like. It's like going to your your spouse and saying, you know what, we're not just going to cohabitate in the house together anymore. Um, we're going to get real with one another's lives. And in fact, uh, maybe it's taking you initiating sex with your partner. That's a scary thing. But that's what that deep-seated togetherness needs to look like. Now, a lot of us have no idea how to make this happen. Few of us ever even experience this type of togetherness. Now, Daniel doesn't wait, and Daniel and his friends don't wait until they're in the fiery furnace to say, hey, let's let's do this together, all right? We're good? No, I'm sure that way before exile took place, they started forming this relationship, started forming these bonds that said, we're going after this together because we don't know what's coming in the future, so we need to start working on it now so we've got it together for them, for them. And that's kind of where we all are, we all are also, Uh, this researcher named Breen Brown did this whole study on um, connectivity. And connectivity is her word, same word that I'm using for togetherness, right? She did this whole study on it, and she kind of tried to figure out what is it that allowed people to connect together? How is it that that happened? And she found as she listened to story after story after story that that the common thread was that all these people that were actually able to form these kind of deep connections, these deep togetherness, um, they talked about the necessity of vulnerability, being vulnerable with one another, the willingness to say, I love you first, or to do something without any guarantee that there'll be a positive response to it. Now, When I bring up the word vulnerability, I'm imagining that every guy in the room turns his head off and says, no, I'm not. (laughs) We're not going there. Because we've got this image in our head that vulnerability is sitting around in a room um, talking about our feelings. And that's not what vulnerability is. Vulnerability has feet. It has actions. It takes courage and guts. It's, It's kind of like this. It's like when you realize, I really want to be a better dad, It's going and finding the guy who you really think is the best dad in the world and going to him and saying, I want to be a better dad. You look like a really good dad. Can you walk with me on that? Can you critique my parenting? Can can you see me interact with my kids? And then we'll debrief on like, hey, how did my strategy go? Did the game plan work? How, How was it? That takes guts. And that takes courage. That's putting your neck on the guillotine and saying, do your worst. 
That's what we're talking about with that's the necessity of this whole thing. It's not sexy, it's not fun, but it is necessary for the mission of this life. Now, for me, there's always this question of why I do these sorts of things with my family. Because honestly, doing these things makes me feel really vulnerable. Uh, It makes me feel really inadequate. It makes me feel like going, you know, when I have to go to my husband and say, hey, let's do this. What do you think, right? Even me, like, just because I'm on staff here, this is still really hard. Um, what if there's a question that gets asked that I don't know the answer to? Or what if everyone just thinks I'm an idiot, right? And so why do I do this if there's so much potential rejection, so much risk, so much putting your neck on the guillotine sort of thing? Um, I do it because years down the road, I have this, I have this desire that when I, when I see myself standing in that furnace where life is heating up, where we're all trying to live noticeably different, but everything's heating up, I not only want to see my husband standing next to me, I want to see my kids. I want to see that my kids are also walking with me in this whole thing. And, and I believe that it takes necessity, the, the necessity of vulnerability. It's not just going to happen. I have to do something to make that happen. And as soon as I said that, all of us very hardworking people in this room say, okay, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to try harder to be vulnerable. I'm going to do better to be together, right? Which is actually the complete opposite response that we're supposed to have. Because God has made it very clear that in his economy, trying harder and doing better is garbage. There is nothing that we can try harder and do better at that will change anything. In fact, God, through Christ, says that what we're really supposed to do is say, I can't do this. It's, it's to let our guard down to God first and say, God, I want you to be with me in this because I, I can't do this on my own. There's nothing natural about being together, about letting people into our lives. There's nothing natural about it. So God, do something inside of me. Will your spirit come inside of me? Will Christ transform my life so that I can first be together with you and then be together with others? Um, In this time that we have right now, uh, we have a time to respond to God. And there's lots of different stations set up around the room. Um, Many of them are described in your um, program that you got when you walked in. And feel free to respond to God during this time, respond to him, respond to the message in any one of those ways. But I want to invite you to do a particular um, challenge or invite you to do a particular thing today in light of this message. The first one is, depending on where your journey is, maybe you just need to have a conversation with God and say, you know what, God? I need to be together with somebody else, but I don't know how to do it. So God, I'm just going to let my guard down and have you start this process. Will your spirit enter inside of me? Will you start this for me? So maybe that's one thing you need to do. Or if you're a person and you look to your right and your left and you're like, yep, I know who those people are. These are them. My invitation for you is to actually go to those people if they're in the room or take out your phone and send them a text message. But if they're in the room, find them and tell them, hey, you're in this with me. It can mean a completely honoring thing and to acknowledge that, hey, we're doing this together. Can we keep journeying in that? That is such a blessing to have. 
And so let's pray together, um, and then you can begin responding in whatever way you need to. Father God, I thank you so much that you don't call us to live, to pursue holiness and live noticeably different on our own. Um, That would just be so hard. But instead, you give us this body of believers. You give us the church to walk together in this. Father, it is really hard for us to figure out how to do that. Sometimes we feel so lonely and so disconnected. But Father God, I just ask that you would allow us to let our guard down to first let you be together with us and we can also be together with others.